Hey everyone, this is Taylor Halverson from Book of Mormon Central. We've had a lot of requests to add our weekly Come Follow Me videos with myself and Tyler Griffin to our podcast. We are very excited to do this. However, just know that we use a lot of visuals in our videos. So if you ever want to see the visuals, check out Book of Mormon Central on YouTube. We hope you enjoy. I'm Taylor. And I'm Tyler. This is Book of Mormon Central's Come Follow Me Insights. Today, Mosiah 11 through 17. How many times have you had a question, a concern, an issue come up, and your knee-jerk response was, oh, I wonder what so-and-so would say about that. So we either Google it or we text someone or we call someone. When seeking truth, a trend that we have is to turn horizontally, looking for answers. Some, somebody's going to be able to tell me what to do or what this means. A former friend and a colleague of mine, uh, Tom Charrington, used to use the phrase, if any of you lack wisdom, let him ask of Google. That, that seems to be the, the prevailing philosophy in our world, is if you're lacking wisdom, there are lots of experts, lots of prophets out there who will tell you how to live or, or what decision to make or what is right or what is wrong versus turning vertically, saying, what would God have me do? Uh, truth is not something that is determined by public opinion or by, by number of likes or number of followers or, or a cause that gets a whole bunch of people really excited about it. Truth is defined by God. Truth is things as they are, as they were, and as they are to come, and that doesn't change with public opinion. So you can think about what would happen if we got all of the inhabitants of the earth, all how, how many, seven point something billion people on the earth to all vote against gravity. What would change? Gravity wouldn't change. What if we got everybody to vote against the existence of God? Would he somehow all of a sudden stop existing? The reality, brothers and sisters, is truth doesn't change. We change based on what we believe or the degree to which we understand and tap into truth, but we can't change truth based on public opinion. So as we jump in here, we're going to be talking about what is the role of a prophet in helping us know what truth is. Not seeing the prophet is just another source among many horizontal sources of, of potential uh, truth-seeking in the world, but rather tapped in to the ultimate source of truth, that God will guide us through his living prophets. I love the word prophet in uh, some of the ancient languages. It actually means somebody who speaks forth. Now, obviously, we're speaking forth right here, but it's actually somebody who's speaking forth truth on behalf of God. Look, God could show up at any point and spend time with us. He could show up right now in this video and say, uh, yeah, Tyler and, Tyler and Taylor are nice guys, but let me actually really tell you what this is all about. But it's interesting, God wants to empower us with agency, and he sends servants to do his work. Now, there's some things that only he can do, right, the atonement, but he sends prophets to teach, 
And our duty is to learn to listen. And we live in an age where there are more voices than ever before, and there's more accessibility to voices. And one of the challenges we face, and I see this when I teach at the university, I hear students say, well, all opinions are created equal. Like meaning that if you're alive in an opinion, that your opinion must have the same validity as anybody else. And what we try to help our students learn, and we hope all of us can practice this better, is to learn to actually find truth. Not simply say, well, because that person spoke, it must be true, but to make sure we understand what are the sources of truth that lead us to greater light, joy, and happiness. It's beautiful. Okay, let's introduce you to the, the main concept that we're going to be covering today with Abinadi, this, this prophet who comes to town. Actually, he dwelled among them it tells us in, in chapter 11. Here's the setup. King Zenith dies, leaves Noah in charge of his people, his son. Look at chapter 11, verse 1. Now it came to pass that Zenith conferred the kingdom upon Noah, one of his sons. Therefore Noah began to reign in his stead, and he did not walk in the ways of his father. Something that is really powerful in scripture is if you can put on these scriptural lenses. There are lots and lots of ways to look at scriptures, and, and what we're sharing today or at any time is not the only way to interpret a block of scripture, but sometimes it's fun to look through different symbolic lenses at, at different characters, at different stories, at different events that occur. If you put on the lens of saying, hmm, here's King Noah, and I'm seeing a real person who lived over 2,000 years ago, and I'm seeing how he acts, but if I see him as a type or a shadow of the devil, what would, what would Lucifer do if he had a body? Well, right out of the chute, he did not walk in the ways of his father. He seeks things that are rooted in whoredoms and all manner of wickedness, verse 2. Uh, he's putting a tax on the people. He's trying to get people to do the work so he can get the joy, the enjoyment out of it and the pleasure. He's, uh, verse 6, the people are laboring to support his iniquity, and he's deceiving them with vain and flattering words. Everything you see as you, as you study through on your own, verse 1 through 19, for me, and I'm just speaking for me, the story becomes way more applicable, way more relevant and engaging and meaningful for me if I stop just reading about a guy who lived 2,000 years ago who, who died so long ago, he's not, he's not part of my life. I, I really don't care about King Noah himself. But this guy is absolutely trying to influence my life and yours, and he's alive and well today working very hard using these same tactics and techniques that are coming out of the story of Noah. So we would just invite you as you read those first 20 or 19 verses of chapter 11 to read it through this lens of seeing what you can recognize as variations on a pre-mortal theme of how Satan acted in heaven and how he's acting today trying to get us to uh, follow him. Jump over to verse 29. Now the eyes of the people were blinded 
therefore they hardened their hearts against the words of Abinadi. That's what Satan is doing today to try to get us to be blind to the truth, to the things that God is giving us through his prophets. He's trying to harden harden our hearts and blind our eyes because then it's way easier to deceive us and get us to do all these things back in, in chapter 11, verse 1 through 19. And what's really interesting about this verse that Tyler first pointed out, it says, he did not walk in the ways of his father. So obviously Noah was not walking in the ways of righteousness like Zenith, but also the devil does not walk in the ways of his father, God. And when you see this phrase, walk in the way, is that is a covenantal word. It is being on the covenant path, right? So if you're walking on that covenant path, your heart is soft, you have your eyes open, you're holding to that rod, and the devil really doesn't want you walking on this covenant path. So he's going to work very hard, and as Tyler pointed out, you can see all the things that the devil does in our lives right here in uh, chapter 11 to get us to not walk on that covenant path, which will take us back to God. Perfect. Now, watch the contrast, because the Book of Mormon doesn't just give you the bad examples here, it's going gonna, it's gonna to put the bad example side by side with the good example. So on this other side, you can put on the lenses of saying, hmm, <clears throat> here we're seeing the story of Abinadi, but by seeing his story play out, we can see types, shadows, symbolic allusions to or allegories towards the story of Jesus Christ and of his role, of connecting us with God, versus Noah's trying to separate us from truth and separate us from heaven and from God and from the covenant path, to walk in my path, come learn of me, do, do what I want you to do, because it's way more fun, it's more pleasurable, right? That's always the invitation. So what exactly is the role of a prophet? Uh, we live in a world that is filled with people who are quote-unquote experts to the point where they, they take on self-appointed roles as a prophet, so to speak, to try to, to get people to come learn of me and, and listen to my words and walk in my way. I'll teach you how to, how to be happy or how to find fulfillment, when in reality, God has appointed means whereby he does that. He calls, appoints, uh, uh, sets apart these, these specific people as his spokespeople, his, his mouthpiece. So Abinadi comes. Now watch. In verse 20, it says, It came to pass that there was a man among them whose name was Abinadi. I, I don't know for sure what this means. I don't know if it means that that he had moved in from somewhere else, but to me it it feels like he's one of their neighbors. There was a man among them, just one guy, his name happened to be Abinadi, that he's not some outsider that got called in. He's a man living in the society, watching what's happening, saying this is wrong, and God picks him to be the mouthpiece. Now watch. He went forth among them and began to prophesy, saying, Behold, thus saith the Lord. You might want to mark that phrase in your own scriptures, thus saith the Lord, 
and thus hath he commanded me, saying, Go forth and say unto this people, Thus saith the Lord. When prophets in Scripture do that, they, they shift into what might be called dialogic discourse where they're, they're no longer speaking for themselves, saying, this is what God wants you to do. It's where they literally become a mouthpiece for the Lord, almost like a, a divine investiture of authority where they say, I am now going to speak directly for the Lord in first person to you. It's no longer Abinadi's words, it's God speaking through me. And it's, it's fascinating in the Book of Mormon and in scriptures when people shift into that mode of speaking in first person for God. It's a pretty powerful technique. Watch what he says. Woe be unto this people, for I have seen their abominations and their wickedness and their whoredoms, and except they repent, I will visit them in mine anger. Once again, it's not Abinadi saying, I've seen your iniquities and your abominations and I'm going to visit you in my... It's not that. It's God saying, here's how to hear my voice. It's through a prophet. I have seen and I will visit you in mine anger. Notice, except they repent is the key. If you want to circle the word except, then maybe underline they repent or something in your scriptures to, to bring this out. Look at verse 21. Except they repent and turn to the Lord their God, I will deliver them into the hands of their enemies. Look at verse 23. Except this people repent and turn unto the Lord their God. Verse 25. Except they repent. Chapter 11 is all about, whoops, let me get this right, conditional prophecies. It's this, except you do this, if you don't repent, I will visit you in mine anger and you will be brought into bondage. Conditional means it's not guaranteed. You don't have to fall into bondage. Just repent. Get back on this covenant path that you've, you've started to stray off of. You've become blind and hardened in your heart. Fix that, come back, and you won't be brought into bondage. Brothers and sisters, I love the fact that God didn't just let these people continue to stray from that covenant path and go, 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 go until he's finally just hitting them with bondage and with, in some cases, destruction because of their iniquities. I love the fact that as they've gotten off the path, he sent them a prophet to say, whoa, don't, th this doesn't end well, come back and then he respects their agency. They, they try to, to capture Abinadi, so to speak, but he is delivered and uh, he gives them two years, two years to see what they're going to do with these conditional prophecies of chapter 11. Now turn it over, chapter 12. He comes back after two years. Verse 1. It came to pass that after the space of two years that Abinadi came among them in disguise that they knew him not and began to prophesy among them. I've heard a lot of people make fun of Abinadi because of verse 1 here because it says he came in disguise and then he starts prophesying among them and the first words out of his mouth are, thus hath the Lord commanded me, saying, Abinadi, go and prophesy almost as if it's a, oh, whoops, uh, I blew my, my cover, I blew my disguise. Uh, Abinadi has to be on my shortest of short lists of incredible 
prophets, doctrinaires in the entire scriptural canon. He is not a whoops, shouldn't have said that kind of a guy. Why the disguise? He, he's been gone for two years. He needs to come back among them in disguise to be able to go freely in the cities of Shalom and Nephi to see what has happened and for God to continue to fill his mind and his heart with the inspiration. Good information leads to good inspiration, and that's true for for us as individuals or families or for leaders in the church, that he goes among them in disguise and he recognizes that all those conditional prophecies have been not just ignored but almost countered. It's not that they've ignored what's happened, they've they've taken it to a whole new level of iniquity, and so Abinadi at this point doesn't need a disguise. He's done. It's, It's filled its role, and off with the disguise now begins his chapter 12 prophecies. But before we dive in there... Well, what's interesting is we have this app called Scripture Plus, and Tyler's brought up some really interesting questions, and as you scroll through the Scripture Plus app and make sure you sign up and register, you'll get access to all sorts of great supplemental content. For example, that answers the question, why did Abinadi go forth in disguise, or why does he stretch forth his hand as he preaches? So check out our Scripture Plus app, and it might help you answer some of the questions you have. Now here's the question. After two years, the people have grown uh, uh, more wicked and have not followed the conditions given. What would you expect God's prophet to say? The world wants a prophet to come and pat them on the back and say, just keep up the good work, don't change anything, you're doing wonderful, eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow you die, and it'll be well with you, because God loves you, right? Brothers and sisters, the question of God's love isn't in question here. Uh, God loves all of his children, That's, that's a given, but God doesn't necessarily trust all of his children, and to be able to empower them with more and more blessings and privileges and rewards in that covenant connection, because they keep breaking it more and more and more. So in this case, the prophet comes back, and notice the wording, three-fourths of the way down in verse 1. Therefore, They haven't repented of their evil doings, therefore I will visit them in my anger, yea, in my fierce anger will I visit them in their iniquities and abominations." Once again, he's speaking for God. He's not speaking in first person for himself, but first person for God, vicariously. I will is very different than except they repent. We're shifting from conditional prophecies to imminent prophecies. Now, some would ask the question, well, why would he do that? Why tell them, you will be brought into bondage, you will be smitten? Because it's going to happen, and when it does happen, God doesn't want them seeing that as some just random occurrence. He wants it to be a sign that I will be your God, you will be my people, and you have wandered and strayed from that core covenantal element in all of the different covenants through the history of time. I want to be your God. You're going to be my people. They've wandered, and so it's this element of him saying, when you are brought into destruction, I want that to be assigned to you that you broke the covenant and I warned you, so now when I come back 
to try to reestablish that covenant with you, you're going to be more likely to want to reestablish the covenant rather than just, I had a random, random destruction fall on my head and I have no idea why and I don't know where it came from. So, in your personal reading or in your family study, look closely at the wording of all of his prophecies in verse 1 through 8. Verse 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, and 8. You're going to find over and over again phrases like, shall be, it shall come to pass, I will cause, it shall come, shall be smitten. Look for these imminent words where God is saying, this, it, it's too late. You, you didn't meet the conditions, and at this point, it's too late. You are going to be brought into bondage. There's only one condition given, and it's in verse 8. Notice, after all of this smitten and pestilence and brought into bondage and howling and weeping, look at verse 8. It shall come to pass that except they repent, I will utterly destroy them from off the face of the earth. So he gives one condition at the end. He says, if you're, you, you've broken the covenant, you're going to be destroyed, you're brought into bondage, if you still choose not to repent at that point when I try to reestablish the covenant with you, if you still reject me and turn your back on me, then you're going to be completely, utterly destroyed from off the face of the earth. Ironically, in our next lesson, next week, we're going to be talking about Limhi's people and Alma's people being brought into bondage. Limhi's people almost, almost fulfill verse 8. They're almost utterly destroyed. Um, gratefully, enough of them start to repent at the very end where they're not completely destroyed, but many of them were, um, and we'll talk more about that next week. This happens in our day. We have prophets that are teaching us the truth, and then people run to Google or Facebook and say, well, actually I get more likes on what I say than what I hear the brethren saying, so maybe I should be listening to my friends. And this seems to be happening in Noah's day. When Abinadi gets done talking, the people grab him. They're not very happy to be told that they need to fix something in their lives. And here's what happens. They bring Abinadi, King Noah, and they say, Oh, now, O king, what great evil hast thou done? Or what great sins have thy people committed that we should be condemned of God or judged to this man? That is very problematic. When God's chosen servants invite us to return to the path, it doesn't help if we say, well, I actually don't have any sins. You cannot hide your sins from the Lord, and that is what King Noah's people are trying to do, and we will see the consequences of them rejecting both what the Word of God has been as well as the reality of their own choices. Look at, look at verse 15. Behold, we are strong. We shall not come into bondage or be taken captive by our enemies. Yea, and thou hast prospered in the land, O king, basically, and thou shalt also prosper. So they're making some prophecies, they're making some judgment calls that are 180 degrees opposite of what Abinadi's saying from the Lord, and they're feeling very, very secure in, in their wickedness. And what's sad here is they're actually stealing covenantal language, where God says, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. I am strong. I am the strong one of Israel. In fact, Israel actually means, you know, to be strong with God. 
and King Noah is taking over God's spot. Like, I'm strong. I'm the one that provides prosperity. No, only God does that. And God actually has no problem if we prosper in all the ways that we can imagine. But when we claim that we've done it, my hand has done it, it's always God. And these people are in for, well, it shouldn't be a surprise. It will be a surprise to them, but they shouldn't have been surprised that they've been listening to Abinadi. Okay, now the priests say, okay, we, we know how to deal with this. We're going to trap this guy. We're going to cross him in his words. We're, we're going to get him to say something that will just condemn him and make him look really bad in front of everybody. So verse 19, they began to question him that they might cross him, that thereby they might have wherewith to accuse him. But he answers them boldly, and he withstood all their questions, yea, to their astonishment, for he did withstand them in all their questions and did confound them in their words, in all their words, at which point one of the priests says, okay, I, I got it, I I'm going to get him here, and he says, uh, Abinadi, the prophet Isaiah said some things that make us uh, really question you and your, your authority here, and this priest takes Abinadi to Isaiah chapter 52. Can I just throw out a word to the wise? If you're going to try to confront a prophet of God, if you're going to try to make him look bad and cross him in his words, can I just recommend that you don't take him to Isaiah to try to do that? Probably the last place in the world you want to, you want to attempt that effort. Uh, Isaiah 52 comes right before Isaiah 53, Isaiah 53 being the, the ultimate suffering servant chapter which Abinadi is going to use to answer this question that the priest poses to him or the situation that the priest presents to him from Isaiah 52. And the statements that he makes in, in uh, verse 21, quoting Isaiah, how beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him that bringeth good tidings, that publisheth peace, that bringeth good tidings of good, that publisheth salvation, that saith unto Zion, thy God reigneth, and the watchmen are going to lift up the voice together, everybody's going to be happy because Jerusalem is redeemed, it's all wonderful and good. We don't know for sure, but it sure looks like the priest is using this against Abinadi to say, you can't be a prophet because a prophet is going to publish peace. Abinadi shows up teaching doom and gloom. Well, according to Isaiah, a prophet should be teaching eat, drink, and be merry, which is what these guys are That's doing. That's what they're teaching. And in the Old Testament, it, there is a law in the law of Moses that if somebody falsely prophesies, they will be executed. That's correct. Which is interesting. So they're trying to say, look, we actually should be able to kill you because you're not preaching eat, drink, and be merry and be really happy. You're preaching doom and gloom, which proves you're a false prophet. We should be able to kill you. And as you were pointing out, these guys did their own false prophecy. Yeah. So here's the, here's the irony. They're trying to use an Isaiah passage to trap a prophet of God. <laughs> if you go back to Isaiah's time period and you look at what he might be referring to about the, the feet on the mountains of him that publishes peace, that saith thy God reigneth, that bringeth good tidings, in, in antiquity – I'll draw a very far away 30,000 foot view from a horizontal level – if you have a city here, 
your city is fenced in, it's walled in, here's a small version of your city, you've got all these people living and buildings in this city, you have towers, and you'll put watchmen on those towers, right? If you have a conquering army that's coming in, you send your army out to fight them. So you have this this huge clash, this battle taking place, hopefully far out away from your city to keep the, the vulnerable parts of your population safe, right? Well, how do we know what's going on here or out at the battlefield if we're here back in the city. Text messages. Text messages don't work great. Smoke signals aren't aren't uh, <laughs> great connectivity at this point of history. So what they would do is they would send runners from the battlefield, messengers, and they would go to the farthest away point that you could still have line of sight view, and this messenger would go to the top of that mountain to be seen by the watchman on the tower and signal back what's happening at the battlefront, whether we're losing, whether it's it's a draw, or whether the battle's over, we've won. In that context, look at Isaiah 52 one more time, verse 21. How beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him that bringeth good tidings, that publisheth peace, that bringeth good tidings of good, that publisheth salvation, that saith unto Zion, thy God reigneth. The watchmen will lift up the voice together, they'll all shout it around the city, they'll, peace, we won, we won, the victory is ours, our God reigneth, hallelujah, right? How beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of that guy the one who gets to come back from the ultimate battlefield and say, our God overcame, the victory's ours. Jesus Christ has completed an infinite atonement for us. We're good. We've got, we've got good news now. Brothers and sisters, that is one of the sweetest uh, ways to describe the role of a prophet or of a missionary or of a mommy or a daddy. Or, or any leader in the church to be able to spread that news, hey, you have great cause to rejoice. And here's the silly thing, Abinadi came in chapter 11 with that message of, our God reigneth, therefore you need to repent because he won this battle, but they don't care about that battle because they're going off on their own, enjoying their own pleasurable carnal, sensual, and devilish lifestyle, and so here stands Abinadi listening to this priest quote to him Isaiah 52, can you just picture the look on his face saying, I would love to preach to you the good news, the glorious news of the gospel, but you are struggling, you've turned your back on God, you've forsaken that relationship with him, you're over here, you're not going to get that message because you've refused that message, so I can't be this particular role for you, I need to bring you back to the covenant path, then we can talk to you about all the good news. And it's interesting, Abinadi then shifts him to understanding what the whole purpose of Isaiah's message here is that this is actually Jesus or his prophets telling us this is a time to rejoice. And he goes on and says, well, what are you guys actually teaching the people? 
okay? You're claiming you're, you're doing something good for them. Well, we teach the law of Moses. And as we know, that's the, the covenantal instructions that God revealed to the people uh, at Mount Sinai through Moses to the Israelites. And he says in verse 29, well, if you teach the law of Moses, why do you not keep it? Wait, leaders should always model the principles that they teach. And what we have in the book of Mosiah, it's very interesting. You have King Benjamin, who not only teaches the truth, but he lives it. Then you have King Noah, who doesn't preserve the records very well, doesn't live the records, and he actually miseducates the people. In fact, worse, he has his priests miseducating people. And then you have King Mosiah near the end of the book of uh, Mosiah, where he teaches the truth and models it for people. So what did I say? You guys need to be living the law because you can't teach it if you don't live it. And he goes on and says that ultimately, if you teach the law of Moses, it's all about Jesus Christ. In fact, if you read the scriptures, particularly the Old Testament, but definitely the Old Book of Mormon, we should be looking for Jesus in the scriptures. And if anybody tells you otherwise, you probably should ignore them. So it's fascinating when, when uh, Abinadi gets into this little, this nitty-gritty discussion with them about the law of Moses, that they're saying, oh, well, of course we teach the law. We're priests. That's what we do. Um, he says, he asks them the question in the bottom of verse 31, doth salvation come by the law of Moses? What say ye? And their response is, yeah, it does, salvation does come by the law of Moses. And then Abinadi clarifies, I know that if ye keep the commandments of God, ye shall be saved. Yea, if ye keep the commandments which the Lord delivered unto Moses in the Mount Sinai, or the Mount of Sinai, saying, and then he launches into retelling them the Ten Commandments. Now, this is really odd because the first commandment is, thou shalt have no other gods before me, in verse 35, and then 36, the second commandment, thou shalt not make unto thee any graven image or any likeness of anything in heaven above or of things which are in the earth beneath. We know based on earlier descriptions of Noah and what he's done, what do, what do you think his Noah's priestly and kingly uh, throne room is adorned with? I think this makes them very, very uncomfortable, at which point Noah's like, okay, away with this fellow, let's just, let's kill him. So here come the guards, and in 13 verse 3 he says, touch me not, for God shall smite you if you lay your hands upon me, for I have not delivered the message which the Lord has sent me to deliver. I love this, this feeling of you've got King Noah, You've got all of his priests, all of the guards, and all of the other people who might be there, all focused on one guy. There's no question who's really in charge here. The command was given by the king, the ultimate authority, take him, seize him, take him away, and he says, touch me not, and they all back away. Taylor, you were talking about some interesting things connecting Abinadi with Moses. Here he is talking about Mount Sinai and Moses, and in the flesh, you've got some interesting things. And he going shines on. like Moses. So, no human king can fulfill God's promises to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. No human leader can do that. That's God's duties to us. But we only get those things if we keep the commandments. And as the priests of Noah said, well, we teach the law of Moses, Benedict says, why don't you live it? 
And then here is Abinadi, where the priests claim that their lead prophet that they want to follow is a guy named Moses. It's very powerful that Abinadi reinstates the Ten Commandments. He teaches the Ten Commandments to them, but more importantly, look at this. He ends up looking like Moses. Verse 5, came to pass after Abinadi had spoken these words that the people of King Noah durst not lay their hands on him, for the Spirit of the Lord was upon him, and his face shone with exceeding luster, even as Moses' did while on the Mount of Sinai while speaking with the Lord. God could not have been more clear to the people that Abinadi was his chosen Mosaic servant to teach the law of Moses yet again because those were the revealed commandments so you could truly prosper in the land and real prospering is actually having God's presence with you. And they still rejected even though they had visual and oral confirmation that Abinadi was God's chosen prophet. Yeah, the the comparison to, to Moses continues here because Moses goes up to the mount how beautiful upon the mount are the feet of Moses, right? Getting this, this glorious uh, vision of, of Jehovah and getting the commandments, and he comes down, and what are all the people doing? Worshiping a golden calf. Yeah, back in Exodus 32. And, and the, the comparisons between this, by the way, just as That's a side a great note, connection. that is where the, uh, the phrase was probably born that we still use to this day. Moses looked at what they were doing and said, holy cow. Um, so I know that's probably a bunch of bull, but I hope you're okay with us using a little bit of uh, unrighteous humor here. And just as you were talking, I had this little thought that Moses actually comes down, he looks beautiful because he's radiating the light of God, and I'd never thought about this until you mentioned it, that Abinadi now looks like Moses, and so he looks beautiful. Yeah. And the priests were like, well, only prophets of God are really beautiful, and God's like, okay, let well, me show let you what show real beauty you. is, and I will have my prophets shine with the light of truth. Okay, now really quickly, this is, this is just going to take a second. Uh, years ago, I was teaching seminary in Brigham City, uh, Box Elder High School, and we were talking about uh, this passage, and I just, I happened to ask the students, how many of you could even tell me what the Ten Commandments are? I don't even care if you can get them in order. Do you know the Ten Commandments? and not very many hands went in the air, and, and one student, a, a girl, raised her hand and said, I've got a way to help you all learn the Ten Commandments without ever forgetting them, and I thought, oh yeah, right, and she said, it's, it's using your fingers, and I didn't believe her, and so she went through the Ten Commandments, and at the end I thought, well, that was kind of fun, and I've never forgotten them ever since. So I'm just going to really, really quickly share those with you, and if this doesn't work for you, I'm sorry. Just but should we tell this everybody part. this will be on the final exam? Yes. So you need to pay attention yes. to this, and if you don't do well in this, then you won't be able to watch us again in the future. Yeah, just be grateful that you're not our <laughs> students at BYU, where you have to take notes and take midterms <laughs> and final exams. Just be really grateful for that. Okay, number one, thou shalt have no other gods before me. One God. Number two don't worship idols, don't bow down to idols. Number three, don't take the name of the Lord thy God in vain. Number four, here's the church, here's the steeple, open the door, see all the people. Number four, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Number five, honor thy father and thy mother, father and mother, five, that thy days may be long upon the, the land. Number six, don't kill, thou shalt not kill. Number seven, 
thou shalt not commit adultery. Number eight, don't steal. Many societies, they cut off thumbs in antiquity. Don't steal. Number nine, I have ten fingers. Don't bear false witness. And number ten, thou shalt not covet. Anyway, just for fun, he works through all ten of them. I'll never forget that now. So now I'm going to be more responsible to actually keep all those now that yeah, I know Yeah, now, now you can... Now you can list them. It's easier to, to keep them if you can remember them, by the way. <laughs> and now he finishes with that, and look at verse 33. This is the key, because he had asked them the question, do you believe that the law of Moses will save you? And they said, yes, we do. And he says, okay, well, let me, let me teach you the core of the law of Moses, teaching them the Ten Commandments. Now look as he comes out of that discussion. Look at verse 33, for behold, did not Moses prophesy unto them concerning the coming of the Messiah, and that God should redeem his people? Yea, and even all the prophets who have prophesied ever since the world began, have they not spoken more or less concerning these things? His point here is, you think the law is going to save you. Well, if the law is going to save you, then why does God need to send the Messiah? Why does he need to send his son? To, to redeem his people. If we can save ourselves by keeping the law, I don't need a savior or redeemer. I can be my own savior. And so he now shifts into the core of his prophetic mission, which is to teach the doctrine of Christ, to glorify Christ, and he does it using Isaiah 53. The priest tried to trap him with 52. He says, let me give you the answer. It's Isaiah 53, but he does it in a really, really beautiful way. Watch this. It's so awesome. In, uh, in antiquity, this doctrine that God would come down and become a man is called in the Book of Mormon the doctrine of the condescension of God. It's to descend with, it's to become like. So. God would condescend to come down and become a man. In other words, Jesus, the, the great Jehovah of the pre-mortal life, would shed all of his, his pre-mortal godliness, so to speak, his, his power, his might, his majesty, his knowledge, his capacities, he would shed all of that to come down and become like us and to become one of us. That doctrine right there, look at this, verse 34, speaking of all of these previous prophets, have they not said that God himself should come down among the children of men and take upon him the form of man and go forth in mighty power upon the face of the earth? They have said that, he says. So his, his opening bookend to chapter uh, 14 is, didn't all of the prophets before say that God would come down and become a man, teaching the doctrine of condescension? Then he gives chapter 14, and then he ends chapter 14 with a closed bookend. Look at chapter 15, verse 1. Now Abinadi said unto them, I would that ye should understand that God himself should come down among the children of men and shall redeem his people. Simple enough, right? Didn't this prophet say, and now I'm telling you this, God is going to come down and become a man. And you're probably thinking to yourself, 
uh, Tyler, why are you spending so much time on this? The reason why is because that's his death sentence. That statement right there, that's what is the lead in to his death sentence. So we're going to skip forward here for a minute. Go over to chapter 17. We, we learn actually in verse 6 that the priests and Noah, King Noah, spent three days scouring their scriptures trying to figure out in the law of Moses what right they would have to kill Abinadi, this thorn in their side, this guy who's come to disrupt our, our pleasurable uh, lifestyle. Look at verse 7. King Noah said, Abinadi, we have found an accusation against thee, and thou art worthy of death. You've done something, Abinadi, that makes you worthy of death. What is it? Verse 8, for thou hast said that God himself should come down among the children of men, and now for this cause thou shalt be put to death, unless thou recall all the words which thou hast spoken evil concerning me and my people. Abinadi, we're going to kill you because you said that God would come down and become a man. How dare you blaspheme the good name of God and bring him down to our level? A couple of uh, scriptures that you could uh, look up on your own time. Leviticus chapter 24, verse uh, 15 and 16. Deuteronomy chapter 13, verse 1 through 5, 17, 2 through 7, 18, 20 through 22. For those of you who, uh, who want to, to dive a little deeper, this would be a great opportunity to pause the video. Go and look up some of these. We don't know because Noah and his priests don't give us their source. They just say, we have found an accusation against thee and thou art worthy of death because you said God's going to become a man. Here are some possible places where they could have twisted the interpretation to call what Abinadi has done blasphemy against the good name of God. Ironically, those very same passages are probably on the short list of, of possibilities for use by the chief priests against Jesus himself to justify themselves in, in turning him over to be killed by the Romans um, because they're seeing him as, as fulfilling some of these Law of Moses uh, violations. So once again, I think it's pretty clear that when you get chief priests condemning Jesus based on and, – and they may have used other things that, that aren't listed here, I don't know – but they're, they're basing their decisions on scripture. Noah and his priests are basing their decision to kill Abinadi on their interpretation of scripture. Again, what really matters is us finding truth, things as they really are. You can justify almost anything even in the scriptures, you can justify almost anything. And so it's really important for us as we move forward to, to figure out what, what is reality. Now, let me take this off so it's uh, not muddying the diagram here. Um, once again, it was, it was my colleague Tom Charrington who showed this to me for the first time and it was just mind-blowing 
that it was Father Lehi in Jerusalem who taught this same thing. After telling them they're wicked and they're going to be destroyed, they mocked him, and then he taught the, of the coming of the Messiah, and now they're looking for rocks to try to kill him. In B.C. times, this doctrine of condescension, it, it is a killer for prophets. They, they, people do not like this doctrine for some reason. Ironically, most people today, if you ask them, does it bother you that, that Jesus Christ, a God, became like us, became a man? Most people are like, no, that's beautiful, it's wonderful. But there's a doctrine today that in A.D. times that people don't like, uh, generally speaking, outside of our church, and it's this doctrine. It's the doctrine of deification or exaltation, the idea that man can become a god. In antiquity, they would say, how dare you say that God could possibly become like man? That, that You are ruining the good name of God, and now people say, how dare you say that man could possibly become like God? We, we solemnly declare collectively as a group, uh, under the, the authority of prophets, seers, and revelators, um, that what Paul said is accurate. We, uh, we believe when Jesus says he thought it not robbery to be equal with God and that we can then become joint heirs with Christ as you combine all these doctrines from the scriptures. The reason Jesus as a God became a man was so that you and I could have the capacity to be exalted by him, through him, and of him. It's by him, not by the law, that we are saved, and that's the whole point that, I, that uh, Abinadi is making here. So now if we go back, turn our pages back to the core of his message to, to Noah and the priests, it's Isaiah 53. And the whole time you're reading, be looking for connecting points to stories that you're already familiar with in the, in the life of Christ. I'll just start you off, verse 2 for he shall grow up before him as a tender plant and as a root out of dry ground. Jesus was born into a period of 400 years of apostasy. He was born into a, into a, a group of people who had been oppressed and, and suppressed for centuries by, by the Greeks and now the Romans and they they are struggling, grow up before him as a tender plant or as a root out of dry ground. You want to talk about being born in a rough setting? Jesus isn't just born into that political and cultural and societal setting, he was even despised and rejected of his own people. He was born in a stable, not even in, in a house. Uh, he, he was rejected, his mother was rejected by people. Now look at the next half. He hath no form nor comeliness, and when we shall see him there is no beauty that we should desire him. God's Son would not come down as a, a Hercules figure, this, this half-God, half-human that everybody's attracted to because of his looks or his, his physical prowess and power. I love Isaiah's words here to say, no, you're not going to be attracted to Jesus because of what he looks like. You're, 
you're, you're going to be attracted for the right reasons if you choose to be his disciple. Instead of all of this outward prowess, it's quite the opposite. Look at verse 3. He is despised and rejected of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. If any of you struggle with sorrows, with, uh, with difficult moments in life, just know that Jesus is a man of sorrows and he's well acquainted with grief. He knows what you're going through and no one can succor you in those, in those dark moments better than he can. He knows what, he knows what that's like. Okay, so now you get the opportunity to, to dive into chapter 14 and read very slowly, very carefully all of these, these words that are at the core of this incredible prophet's message to these people and just pause as you go through and consider the price that was paid to redeem your soul. And it's not the law that's going to save you, it's this, this suffering servant that is going to save you. Then he finishes that, comes to chapter 15, and he, he gives that other bookend, and then he launches into probably the most, for many people, the most confusing section of the entire Book of Mormon because a lot of people will read this and they'll say, wait, this looks like the Trinity doctrine because verse 2, 3, 4, and 5, they're talking about the oneness and the unity of the Godhead. Uh, because he dwelleth in the flesh, he'll be called the Son of God, having subjected the flesh to the will of the Father, being the Father and the Son. The Father, because he was conceived by the power of God, and the Son because of the flesh, thus becoming the Father and the Son. So what he's talking about here in verse 2, 3, 4, and 5 is how you have God the Father who has his Son who is a God, the Holy Ghost is a God, that's the Godhead, um, and so what Abinadi is doing is showing in verse 2, 3, 4, and 5 from the way I interpret this is how this Son of God who condescended, came down to become a man, how this Son then also becomes our Father. So he's going to be saying, look, he's both Father and Son. He's the Father because he inherited all of this from our Father, from God the Father, but he's also the Son because of the flesh. Look at verse 4. And they are one God, yea, the very eternal Father of heaven and earth. Cross-reference there to Mosiah chapter 3 verse 8, that he's the creator of all things, heaven and the earth. The, these Book of Mormon prophets do not have a problem calling Jesus the Eternal Father, the Everlasting Father, just like Isaiah didn't have a problem saying this Son would become our Everlasting Father. So if you can keep in mind that Abinadi's message is focused here and how the Son glorifies the Father, then these verses aren't as complicated. And uh, look at verse 9. This is probably one of the finest verses that shows the role of Jesus Christ and, and mercy and justice finding fulfillment because of Jesus Christ. Verse 9, having ascended into heaven, 
having the bowels of mercy, being filled with compassion towards the children of men, standing betwixt them and justice, having broken the bands of death, taken upon himself their iniquity and their transgressions, having redeemed them and satisfied the demands of justice." This whole idea of God coming down and becoming a man is so that he could take upon himself not just flesh, but take upon himself my humanity and your humanity and your humanity, to take upon himself all of our sins, our iniquities, our imperfections, and eternal justice has a price that has to be paid. It has to be meted out, and here's me, here's you, it has to be meted out, and what does Jesus do? He says, no, I'm going to stand betwixt you and justice. I'm going to absorb the ultimate punishment for your imperfection and your sin. The more I learn about Jesus, the more I love him, the more I stand in awe. Brothers and sisters, there's a reason we sing I stand all amazed at the love Jesus offers me, confused at the grace that so fully he proffers me. Uh, I tremble to know that for me he was crucified, he suffered, he bled, he died, he did it for me, he did it for you. I don't understand that level of goodness. I don't understand how God can love one so weak, so flawed, so imperfect as I. I don't get it, but I guess that's the message of Abinadi to these people, is we don't have to get that. We just have to trust that he is our Savior, that he does love us, and he does know what he's doing, and he will guide his work as it spreads forth in the world, not through social media, not through, not through Google. He'll do that predominantly through his prophets, seers, and revelators, and through personal revelation as it flows from heaven to leaders and missionaries and mommies and daddies and grandmas and grandpas the world over. Uh, as we finish today, just know that there is a God in heaven. He's not perplexed by all these struggles that we're experiencing on this, on this earth, and we do have a Savior who is still to this day, not just in the atoning event, standing betwixt us and justice and is pleading our cause before the throne of God and uh, know that you're loved. We sure love you guys. Thank you for spending time with us. We know there's many things going on in your lives, and we appreciate your love for God, your love for the scriptures, your, your desire to better understand the truth and apply it in your lives, and we just encourage you to spread light and goodness wherever you go and just know that God loves you.